I think really the key for interviewing anybody is to actually listen. And you kind of have to be prepared, walk into the interview, and then open your mind up and actually listen. I think when people prepare and they have their order of questions and they go through it and they, in their mind, have what they want to do, they're actually not opening themselves up to have an actual conversation, a back and forth, to be open to the fun things that may come out of the interview and to actually laugh sometimes. People say some funny things. Be a human being. Laugh. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about people who are trying to make good journalism. It's been a long time coming, but it finally got somebody in here to give me some tips on how to interview journalists. Sonia Gavankar is the manager of public relations for the museum here in Washington, D.C. She spends a lot of time promoting the museum and in the process interviews lots of journalists. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Thank you for having me. That introduction makes me feel so important. Thank you for perking me up today. I feel better about myself. Everyone is important. I only interview important people. Oh, this is uh, a very important podcast. Made it. Yeah, finally. Okay, so first things first. What is the key to interviewing a journalist? I think really the key for interviewing anybody is to actually listen. And you kind of have to be prepared, walk into the interview, and then... Open your mind up and actually listen. I think when people prepare and they have their order of questions and they go through it and they, in their mind, have what they want to do, they're actually not opening themselves up to have an actual conversation, a back and forth, to be open to the fun things that may come out of the interview and to actually laugh sometimes. People say some funny things. Be a human being. Laugh. Yeah. And and actually, that's a better experience for the listener as well. If there's a sort of natural flow and between two people that, you know, that people are drawn to those those types of conversations. The only reason I asked and I started by asking specifically about journalists, I had a I had a guest in here a few months back and, and she had uh, written a book which required her to interview a lot of journalists about how they do their jobs. And I think it was had to do with audio storytelling. And she was, you know, she said that she had a really difficult time. That journalists are great at turning the conversation around so they're suddenly asking questions. And I find myself sometimes, like when I'm in conversations with people, suddenly I'm I realize I'm interviewing them and I'm not actually participating in a conversation. What are yeah. your thoughts about that? I think journalists are generally not used to talking about themselves. They're really good at, like you said, the other side of the the coin, the they table. Want to control. Yeah, and and they're not used to talking about themselves. They're really modest people in that way. They don't like being the center of attention. And I think a lot of what I do is in the very beginning, I have a conversation off the record in the green room where I just kind of make them feel at home and say, these are the kinds of conversations I want to have where it's like you're at a cocktail party with your friends and you're talking about the stuff you never get to talk about, the stuff that's in your reporter's notebook, the things that are at the top of your mind that don't actually make it into the stories that you're telling the rest of us in your actual job. Because we can read everything they write, we can listen to all of their radio shows, but I want to hear the stories that don't make it into that regular reporting. And that kind of frees them up to tell the fun side of their personality. And I kind of warm them up beforehand. So when we do dive in, we're already pals. Yeah. And that was actually one of the reasons why early on that we wanted kind of to do this podcast. It was the, you know, a lot of times when shows like Meet the Press. Mm. It's like, oh, we've got the press in here. We're going to ask them questions. They're always talking about whatever it is they're covering. They don't actually talk about their process. They don't actually talk about, well, why did you make this choice? You know, why did you decide to to give this person in your article more credit? Or, or, you know, what did you do to to be transparent? Or from a technical side, you know, what skills are you employing 
to tell the story in the best possible way. And so those are kind of the the angles that we're going at. And, and certainly over the life of the podcast, you know, I've run into occasionally people, it was very difficult for them to sort of understand that what we really wanted to do was to go a little bit into the weeds about how they did their jobs and, you know, what their thinking process was. Mm-hmm. And once, you know, once we started having some of those conversations, actually those tended to be really fascinating when somebody opens up about, you know, oh yeah, we had to go cover this big event and we, you know, we decided that we only had this amount of resources and you know, we had to dedicate this. And then once we had, oh my, we have all this video. So how are we going to present this video? And so just different ways of just tackling a story. And I found that very fascinating to yeah. listen to. How about you? PG? Yeah, I, I think that also telling people kind of what your audience is and who the audience is for the project and telling people, telling the person who's being interviewed, you're going to demystify and show us how the sausage is made. They feel more comfortable in that also. They feel like they're not the center of the story. It's more the process and the craft of journalism. And then they feel a little bit more comfortable to open up as well. Because we do like knowing how the sausage is made. And when when an interview subject finds out, hey, a lot of school kids listen to this, a lot of aspiring journalists listen to this, they want to know that what they're saying is inspiring the next group of people coming up behind them. So they feel kind of good about that. And that helps them open up. Yeah, I was going to next I was going to ask you about your history in journalism, but to sort of follow along with with, uh, what you just said, I mean, your your job, part of your job is interviewing a lot of these very important journalists Mm -hmm. who've done some very important stories. What types of things have you learned from that? You're right. I've interviewed amazing people. When I went into the field of journalism 20 years ago, you know, who knew that this is what it was going to be like, that this is the environment we would be doing our work in, that you could do PR journalism, storytelling in storytelling in a way that uses the journalistic ethics and not have it be kind of one leg in 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 one place. And I've had the opportunity to interview Sam Donaldson, a man who I watched growing up and who inspired me to be a journalist. You know, when I interviewed him, I was looking into his eyes and I thought, oh, my God, he's right in front of me. And my parents were in the, you know, in the audience. And I thought this is happening. And it was amazing. Yesterday, I interviewed David Farenthold. I mean, like, what an amazing opportunity that that few people have to interview Pulitzer Prize winners, find out how they do their process, how they do their craft, kind of become friends with them for a little bit of time is such an exciting time that I get to have in my job. What type of things do you learn about the way they do the craft? Is there anything, you're interviewing all these different types of people, do you see sort of a common thread that runs through the type of work they do or or the way they approach it? I don't know if there's a common thread, but I am always watching and I'm always keeping my own ears and eyes open for things that I can pick up from each person that I interview because they are at the top of their game. So I want to get close. So I'm always watching. I'm always listening. And for me, sometimes it's seeing when they fail. Like, oh, okay, I see when Sam Donaldson yelled out at Ronald Reagan, how did it work for him in that one situation when it didn't work in another to get a response? And I'm always asking how they felt in those moments. But I really am keeping my eyes always open, keeping my ears open, especially when I listen to podcasts now. I mean, I adore Terry Gross. I, I want to be Terry Gross when I when I grow up, when I wake up. I mean, that's like, that's the reality. One day I'll wake up and hopefully just suddenly be Terry Gross. But she listens. She keeps herself open. She She does so much research, but then allows herself to have fun in the conversation. Those are things that I've learned by just consuming a lot of content. Yeah, one of my favorite... WTFs uh, with Mark Marin was mm-hmm. when he interviewed Terry Gross. Yeah. And you get sort of this completely different side of her. That totally different. She seemed like like some poor woman who lived in a, in, in a crowded 
a New York apartment that was filled with like CDs. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just like Books, you could picture it. CDs. Yeah, yeah. And a cat. I, I, exactly. So let's let's backtrack a little bit and talk about about your career path, your journalist journey, journey as I like to call it. You know, how did you get started in this? Uh, first of all, a journalist journey, amazing. You should get that copyrighted immediately. I wanted to become a journalist way back in 1991, watching the first Gulf War start. I watched three at the time, white men on network television. We didn't have cable, nothing wrong with white men, but they were three guys who were like, we don't know what's happening, but we'll get back to you soon. And I turned to my parents and said, I can do this job better. And my mother looked at my father and said, she's never coming home. And from then, I kind of pushed myself to become a journalist. I Every school project that there was, I tried to do it as a documentary. I tried to do it as a radio show. I was constantly tweaking things to work for me to help me grow in the field of journalism. I came here to Washington, D.C. to go to college. I went to American University, just up the road from where we're recording from today. And, you know, the the bad thing is when you go to school in a city like Washington, it's hard to leave. And the the way that journalists get to the top of their game is by going to small towns and working their way up. And I really wasn't willing to leave here. I, I had done some great work in Washington as a student. And I kind of felt like I didn't want to go somewhere else. So I have missed the boat on becoming a news anchor in that way because I didn't follow the traditional path. But in the process, I've worked for some amazing organizations, been with the museum for 16 years now, that has allowed me to expand the skills that I have, expand the way that I do my work. So I am a lot more flexible and a lot more nimble to be in the field of journalism than people who may be slogged away in those smaller markets and work their way up. You know, when you put together your resume, you 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 seeded it with some very interesting little pieces there. First, you you were Miss DC. I was. That's not, not a career path that a lot of people choose. Why right. why did you choose that? So I did it as a joke. <laughs> Pretty much That's everything. What she says no, now. no, it's true. Everything in my career. Somebody said to me a couple of days ago. So you might want to get the bleep button ready for this one. He said, "You seem like the person who just says fuck it, I'll do it." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, you know, is it is it going to be funny? Is it going to be a good time? Will will we all have a better time because I do it? Let's do it." So I was looking to help my parents pay for college. I answered and the college paper saying young women looking for scholarship money, call this number, called the number. It was apparently the Miss America office. And they said, you should compete. And I thought, for what? Like I, I loved watching pageants with, you know, my family, but I'm not a pageant girl. I was a tomboy. I've had short hair my entire life. I don't follow the mold. So I did it as a joke and then went to the first meeting, met the other girls and was like, oh, I'm winning this. And then you became very competitive and and won. Um, But through that process, it helped me refine who I was, refine my dreams, my ambitions. And now I give back to that same organization. Over the last 20 years, I've helped over probably 400 young women help achieve their goals of philanthropy and scholastics. And it's given me a lot as well. So, I mean, people obviously have certain impressions about, oh, for sure. about what, what a pageant is and people are participating in pageants. But, you know, you, you talk about the, you know, one of the positive aspects of it. Like it or not, this is a place where, you know, young women can can get educational help mm-hmm. that can find support and pick up skills that are going to help them to sort of move forward. I've met other people in my day job who work at think tanks who mm-hmm. began in, in the pageant circuit, if it is a circuit, I guess. But not only is that, and, and I feel reluctant to ask about this. Totally be, ask it because I will because, tell you honestly. Just because um, every, uh, you know, in doing my research about this, 
it seems like everybody asks you this question, but I feel it necessary to ask you this question. Tell me about hosting the Puppy Bowl. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about pageants. No, the Puppy Bowl is why you go to journalism school. It's to read a teleprompter while holding a pound puppy. That's really why we do it, isn't it? <laughs> it's the weirdest thing, you know, to get that call and say, you know, hey, we're interested. I didn't apply for that gig. Like, they came to me, which is even cooler, right? I'm like... Everything I've done in my life, that one person who I carried their bags at the grocery it store has, has led to this yeah. moment. <laughs> but it was so cool. I mean, it's it's the it's just surreal and fun, and to you know to be given the name that's vaguely British. So my name was not my name for the broadcast. It was Sheena Inu, uh, which is a playoff of a breed of a dog. But to like hold a dog and then you know do the whole show, hilarious. Unfortunately, the suit I have worn can no longer like be outside of a plastic bag because it just smells like dog. It just, unfortunately. <laughs> She's the journalist who smells like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's that's cool. But, you know, that's that's the great things. Uh, one of the great things about the career path that we yeah. have is that sometimes weird and, and unusual and actually very fun things that, I you know, the puppy bowl, everybody, had, you know, oh, the puppy bowl. But, you know, there are a lot of good things about it, too, like like the pageant that it it provides opportunities for people. And it's and just dogs. a good time. There's and nothing wrong time. with having a good time. Right. Right. So now you said you've been at the, the museum for 16 years. You know, a lot of people outside of D.C., you know, we I think most of our audience are, are journalists. They may not even be aware of what that there is a museum. Sort of explain what that what the mission of the museum is and what your role there is. Sure. The museum has been around for 20 years. We first opened in Arlington, Virginia. I went there when that yeah. happened. And it was cute. It was a nice little place that, you know, you could have a lot of fun. You could understand, you know, the history of news. But then we decided to move about 10 years ago down to Washington, D.C., in the heart of the nation's capital, right there on the mall on Pennsylvania Avenue, because we were ready to take our message big time. And that's what we focus on. We focus on the five freedoms of the First Amendment. And we talk about what free expression really is, how to champion it and how to exercise it every single day. And not only here in the United States, but around the world. And press does fit into that. I think a lot of people, especially because of the name Newseum, they think it's just about news. But really, it's about all five freedoms of the First Amendment and how to use them before you lose them. And these are interesting times for us to be talking about that. Absolutely. Like I said, for 20 years, we've been talking about this. And now suddenly everybody feels like they're being attacked. And luckily, we've been talking about it for so long that we are the experts in the field and people can come to us to learn more. But also we can advocate for others. What is the museum doing to sort of I mean, let me ask this in a couple of different ways. First, how has its mission changed and its focus changed as our industry has become more digital. It gives the opportunity for more people to have their voice be heard with so many outlets and so many different ways to tell your story. Like I said, you know, I went into journalism because of three networks. Now it's an incredibly noisy atmosphere. There are podcasts, there are video blogs, there's Twitter, there's Snapchat. I mean, all so many different platforms that you can use. So, so many people can actually use that for good and to do something other than just taking selfies in your the front seat of your car. You could actually do something with this power. So being able to help folks understand that and to understand how to use journalistic ethics and journalistic tools to tell their story in a more powerful way is something that we use to evolve the story. Right now we're focusing a lot on virtual reality. We think that's the next storytelling platform across different Genres. It's not just journalism. People are using it for for advocacy, for medical research. 
different things that people are using it for. So we're looking at that more actively. It's not just about the old school legacy print television radio days. It's about how the common man can't become necessarily a citizen journalist, but can be more powerful in how they use their voice. Yeah, it's interesting when, you know, you look back 20 years to when the museum started. And I remember going there when it was in Roslyn and thinking about, you know, it was it was like any other museum in, in D.C. It's like, here's a survey of what we saw were the most important aspects of whatever our subject is. And it was very much, you know, uh, celebrating, you know, uh, mm-hmm. over 100 years of legacy journalism, yeah. like big newspapers, uh, you know, covering important stories, the development of television networks and things like that. And so much of that has changed in the last 15 years. You know, has it been been difficult for the museum to sort of, you know, make that switch or, or that change? Not at all. I don't think it's been hard for us at all. In that old space, you know, you could do the be a TV re- reporter experience where you read the teleprompter and then we handed you a VHS tape and you went home with a VHS tape. You know, now we can actually talk about what people are doing, how things are changing. And because we were so willing to take those chances early on when the technology was not so nimble, now we can change, we can adapt, we can show our stories in very different ways because we do it all internally. We are a very nimble organization. It takes us three months to put up a new exhibit. It can take us, you know, 24 hours to put up a new exhibit if we absolutely have to. So we're a lot more nimble than any other institution, probably in the world. And we take that to our advantage, especially when we're talking about technology. So how has your audience changed or has it changed? You know, I don't think the audience has changed. Half of our visitors are school kids. I don't think the actual audience has changed. I think the audience awareness of the issues we talk about has vastly changed, especially in the last year. A lot of people are coming to us wanting to know about fake news and saying, do you have anything on fake news? And we think... We've had something on fake news since the day we opened. We talk about yellow journalism. We talk about the old days of, you know, Pulitzer and, you know, what was going on back in the old days of, uh, you know, the New York Times, Hearst and Pulitzer. Thank you. You know, those are the things we've been talking about since the beginning. So now people are more aware. So now we can have deeper conversations as opposed to these surface kind of telling them what the the reality is. Now we can go deeper and actually have conversations. And we're taking that role on far more as well, where we're a convener of conversations between newsmakers, newsbreakers, and the public, as opposed to just telling you about the, the craft. Yeah, one of the things that's come up since the election, since before the election, we've on the podcast we uh, we've talked a lot about fake news, but recently the the shift in the conversation has also been toward media liter- literacy. Absolutely, and I think that's probably something that your organization has something to say about. Absolutely, and again, we're using that technology. We have a very robust curriculum for for education that we call Museum Ed. It's online at museumed.org. It's for primarily for teachers, but it could be for parents, for just the common man to better understand how to be a good consumer of content. And when people say, you know, I think that the news is partisan, but then we find in our surveys that people say that, but then they're more likely to only go to the source that they believe in. Well, it's kind of a self-defeating prophecy. So, you know, it's you have to be able to understand how to be a good consumer. And to be a good consumer, you have to listen to people you totally disagree with. Yeah, I think the election and lead up to the election has has triggered in a lot of people the the, the importance of mm-hmm. what new, good news is, well-sourced news is. 
I think fake news is is a part of that mix. But for the longest time, you know, in recent years, it's it's been very much you know we've seen the way that newsrooms, big newsrooms, have have reacted and sort of incorporated you know, social media and how, you know, clickbaity headlines and and all of that stuff has sort of been percolating. And it just, it seemed to sort of break with the, the campaign and the election. And now people are kind of like, oh, one of the things, the, the benefits of it is, you know, more people are, are subscribing to some of the bigger papers and supporting yeah. them. Something that, that, you know, the legacy newspapers have been, have been trying to, to get people to do, to switch to digital, to support digital. And now we, you know, we live in a town like the, where, where the Washington Post mm-hmm. is, their subscription rate has gone up and, and we're seeing the benefit of them putting more resources in their reporting. And, you know, it's sort of this cause and effect and it, it takes time sometimes, but it's, you know, I think it's very powerful in 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 helping the people to understand uh, what's going on right now. I totally agree. What The Washington Post is doing right now, especially with digital and social media, is fascinating how The Washington Post is using Snapchat. I'm still not totally understanding how you create Snapchat content for people to pick up, because as I like to say, I'm a grown ass adult, so <laughs> I'm a more of a viewer of Snapchat content. But I think it's fascinating that they realize that people have cut the cord, that they're not going the traditional outlets to get their news. So to understand that people are using Snapchat as their entree into what is deeper in the Washington Post is fascinating. They're not letting everything kind of figure out and let the chips fall before they decide where they're going to put their content. They're going to be figuring it out with everyone as they're they're figuring it out. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, they've they've been spending the last few years sort of moving the deck chairs yeah. around and then suddenly with an influx of money with mm-hmm. a, a influx of focus on the work they're doing suddenly and staffing up in, yeah. in some very strategic places social media and video um you know boom they're covering big stories in a really big way mm-hmm. i was listening we had uh, allison michaels on a couple of months ago talking about her podcast can he do mm-hmm. that i was just listening to the podcast yesterday where you know, the, the Washington Post, Post rolled out a really big story about uh, the Russian involvement in uh, the the election process. So they ran out this big story and she had a podcast yeah. that was, you know, talking about that and talking to those uh, those reporters. And it's just the number of different strata of the way they're rolling out news right now is is you know, is great. It's it's great for the news consumer. It's great for us to see the depth of their reporting and then just showcasing it in, in multiple different platforms. It's I, kind of like they're showing their math at the same time. It's exactly. Their, it's their, the demystifying, the publicizing of it. And like we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, the difference between journalism and PR is, is getting closer-ish. I don't want them to ever be the same thing. But to be able to have the Washington Post interview their own journalists with their own journalists to then publicize the content so people can actually go and read and then invest in that work is fascinating. It's a fascinating time. Yeah, no, it, it, that's a great example of another another part of the anti-fake news thing, which is transparency. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, show, as you said, show your math. Mm-hmm. It, you're doing this reporting, you know, make it clear where you get these sources, make it clear, you know, how much you're able to back all this up. Show your reporting so that people can more easily believe and not refute what you're doing. Right, right. So, you know, great stuff. Now, you, you talked, uh, you know, a little bit when you were talking about your, you know, entree into to journalism, your your initial reaction and in watching three white men on TV, um, ineffectively reporting something. Um, 
you know, wh- what are the opportunities or, or what are the, the gaps that are still out there of, of women in general in our industry? So many thoughts. So many thoughts, Michael. Um, <laughs> this will be part two of our podcast. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that women, you know, are kind of are kind of self-defeatist at the same time. Like, oh, well, I'm not I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to throw my ball into that game because I need to have more experience when, you know, men general I'm speaking generally here, you know, are more likely to step in and say, give me a try. I'm going to show you the work that I can do. So that's one side. But, you know, I, I think especially in the field of journalism, which is uh, television journalism, which is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a war correspondent. There is this feeling which is not right or wrong, but, you know, if there's already the short-haired brown girl, they're not going to hire another short-haired brown girl. You want to have that diversity of view because you want your audience to see themselves when they're watching you. So that's kind of sucks for somebody like me who is really obvious looking. So I think that we have to get a little over, you know, the stigmatization of race, class, look. I mean, that's like a whole other podcast that I don't even know enough about to talk about. But I think that... It's tough for women and women kind of have to just throw themselves into the work and know that their work is oftentimes better than anybody else's and stop letting ha- letting themselves have the, the voice in the back of their head saying, wait till you're totally ready and you're not ready yet. I agree with a lot of what you said. There's I mean, I don't know. This, this is something that's coming up, come up many times on the podcast is, is how we can create more diverse newsrooms mm-hmm. it, because it's important to, you know, have those decision Absolutely. makers. Yeah, no, there. a diverse newsroom is so important because people it has nothing to do with being biased. It has something to do with understanding the truth of a story. And when you have people who understand what a community is dealing with, you're more able to communicate that message and communicate what they're going through because you come from it from a basis of an understanding. That's not to say that somebody else who doesn't know what that community is going through can't ask the right questions, but there's a basis of understanding that's important. A diverse newsroom is only going to help the world. So getting different viewpoints, getting different backgrounds. There was a while uh, at the museum that we would train people to become journalists who came from previous careers. So they were, you know, engineers in their past or they were teachers. And how to parlay that into a journalism career was something that we were working on for a while until, of course, technology changed that. And we kind of widened it to allow more people to understand the craft. But the more expertise that you can bring to a story, the better for the consumer. I know I feel terrible saying that. They're like, you know, white guys, you know, middle-aged white guys. That's like, that's not fair to you. You're well, a nice guy. But you know, <laughs> it's not fair to, to, to paint such a broad brush with it well, either. But here's the, here's the deal. <laughs> Let me mansplain that. For you. <laughs> now, uh, the, you know, I'm a great believer in the positives that digital journalism has created. Uh, the ability to give lots of different people voices, lots of different types of people voices, and also in the process blowing up a lot of legacy news systems that were built by white people, yeah. uh, built by white men pr- primarily who staffed those those newsrooms and, and made all the decisions about what they were going to cover and cover the things from a particular perspective who would you know, helicopter into a particular story and then leave because they had no investment in that community right, right. or no perspective of what that community was. So... Any opportunity to sort of blow that structure up, I'm I'm all for. Right, and I'm speaking metaphorically, not 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 in, in any other particular way. But I am a believer in, in that we do need to have more diverse new, mm-hmm. newsrooms, just because I don't know all the stories. You know, I've grown up a certain way. I don't know what things in my life are that I didn't have to deal with because that was not part of the mix. Right, and so what advantages that I may have gotten, you know, who knows. 
you know, I can't honestly say that, oh, no, everything I got here, I, I got here on my hard slog. There was no, you know, opportunity that was given to me or, or de deference given to me just because I was I was a white male. It was no, no, no. It's everything. I earned everything. I've, I've grown to understand that, you know, I benefited from whatever I benefited from. Right. But that does not mean that it's mine, that I own it or that that is right. And I think. You know, I'm a true believer in, in gosh, I got to get, get the soapbox out. I'm a true believer in the First Amendment in America and what it means to have free speech for everybody. And there are lots of people and we're seeing so many different types of stories coming out, immigration, crime, the opioid epidemic that that are shifting around as we begin to kind of understand what the different communities are. And yeah. we, we just need to start listening to people. You have more. to start, li oh, not you, people have to yeah, start listening. Yes. shut yeah, up and no. listen. No, I think people need to listen more exactly what you're saying. But I also think that people need to, on both sides, give other people a chance. I just uh, moderated a panel for MCON, the Millennium Conference, and we get a lot of our questions from from an app. So they have thousands of people who watch online. They send in their questions to an app and then the host reads it from the app and then chimes in. And always the question, you know, if there was a white person on the panel, I was like, well, how does your privilege like, you know what? You don't know this guy's full story. We don't know where he's coming from. And we should be happy that he's willing to take his camera out to cover, you know, the transgender community in the Philippines. He's willing to do that work and he's going to do that work properly Let's give him the benefit of the doubt for just a second. We don't have to always attack people on privilege and all these other things. Let's have a conversation about the work that he's doing instead. Sonia, this has been a great conversation. So what? how can people find out more about the museum? The museum is always available 9 to 5. We're open every day of the week. Uh, we are also online at museum.org. We do some fun things on social media as well. But we're always growing. We're always looking for new stories to tell and new ways of telling it. The museum really changed the dynamic of how museums do their work. You know, back in the day, there would be the stuffed bear. You know, my kid's at a museum right now where it's a bunch of artifacts hanging from the sky. And that's cool. White man who went to space. No, no. Hey, somebody <laughs> had to do it. But yeah, I think there was a cat and a dog who went first. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, there it was a more of a static experience. And the museum changed the dynamic of making it more interactive, making the storytelling be different and understanding that an audience listens to stories in very different ways. And we wanted to make sure that the visitor who came to the museum Every different type of person left understanding the same message. So that's our approach. Yeah, you, you guys are actually benefiting from the fact that you, the the thing that you're covering is changing in the same way that the new the museums yeah. are changing. Museums have have just so the way they've evolved over the last you know 20 25 years has been pretty incredible to make them more immersive mm -hmm. because that's the way people are are learning. That's the other thing you see this all the time where they talk about you know, little kids and the way they interact with like an iPad or something and, and their thinking, their visual acuity is so different than what ours was when we were kids. Yeah. And the way we take it, they take in information is so differently, so different. It's, you know, it, it's fascinating. And, and what that means then for storytelling, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned VR, we're kind of at the, you know, the cusp of, of VR and how that's going to change the way, you know, certainly everybody's like, oh, it's going to improve our game, game plays and our entertainment. But, you know, what is that going to mean for the way we communicate? What is that the way going to mean for the way we tell stories? It's, it's going to be fascinating. It's there's a great documentary about refugees that The New York Times launched uh, earlier this spring. That's really immersive, really fascinating, great filmmaking, great storytelling. I am not totally on the VR train because I like to multitask. Now, maybe if they're like autonomous driving cars, maybe I'd be more likely to do VR. But VR is such a 
one way experience that people like being on their phones and like doing all these other things. I don't know if people are going to go for it whole hog. I think it's too fun. Now, you could play this big. It's got to be more like homework. Well, I feel like, you know, I also feel like, you know, 10 years from now, you could be like, let me play this tape back to you. And, you know, like TV, it's never going to catch on. But I feel like there's got to be some kind of interactive experience. It can't just be so personalized. I don't think we want that. Yeah. We want to experience it with a wider group of people. Yeah. They're well, but then look how people consume films now. Most people watch. That's true. I watch uh, it in my bed on Netflix on an iPad. So you're right. Exactly. Yeah, I'm right. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Sonia, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for inviting me. Next time on It's All Journalism. This is usually the place we play a clip of our next interview. And uh, we haven't done our next interview yet. Uh, We've lined up something special for next week. I don't want to tell you who it is. It's a surprise, but uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Be sure to check out It's All Journalism next Thursday. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time for you to start a podcast? While you're on our website, leave a comment or send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com. We're always looking for new guests and topics for the podcast. We also like getting feedback on how we can make the podcast a better experience for you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at All Journalism and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.